is when you mash together these two ideas. That we didn't keep the law of God enough. We need to do that better. And you mash that up with, I really want to control how my life goes. This is where you end up. You end up in a position where where you come out with this way where you can control God. And here's what I mean. You make God into this vending machine. If I keep the laws of God really well, if I input all of the righteousness and goodness, and I'm a good person and I'm trying my hardest, and if I input all of that, then God should output blessing and positive things happening to me. Or at the very least, he should keep negative, horrible, awful things from happening to me. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. How's it going, everyone? My name is Jesse. Uh, I know some. Where, where are my Walla Walla people at? Anybody in here? Sweet. Okay, there's only like two. <laughs> okay, there's like three or four. Um, my name is Jesse. I uh, my wife and I moved here two months ago um, with our little daughter Madeline. Uh, I'm working at Anthem with, uh, with Pastor Josh and. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here. I said I would never come to Southern California, and here I am. So uh, <laughs> um, today we're going to be talking about this, uh, this chunk of text out of Mark. And the title of the, the, the sermon is Forget the Bread. And <laughs> there's this habit I picked up back at Walla Walla, actually, where we had a Walmart that was pretty much the only like place to really get groceries um, other than the like Adventist like food market that I guess you could go there, but Walmart was just cheaper, you know? And so you go to Walmart and uh, I, you know, you'd be shopping. I'd be getting like lucky charms. I was going to eat dry because college was a place of healthy food and uh, my metabolism, but no, actually my metabolism could handle all of the junk that I was putting in my body. And one of the things that I picked up was you could go to the bakery section. And in the bakery section, there was, you know, all, all these types of bread that were baked uh, either on site or they were shipped in. I don't, I don't know exactly, but they were like, uh, they were just in a, in a bag. And you know, like the French bread that they usually sell at, at, a, at a supermarket? Well, the problem with French bread is that it's got like a crust that's pretty hard, right? And so if you just want to eat it plain, like it's not fun. And so they had, at this Walmart, they had Italian bread, just a nice, nice, thin little crust. And I would buy that, and then you just open the bag, and you just rip off the end, and you just eat it. It's awesome. <laughs> and there's a habit I picked up in college that I still like to do, and my wife's like, you're a grown man. What are you doing? Just eating, like just ripping off a chunk of bread, eating it. And that's, it's just, it's filling, it's not healthy. It's not. It's bad for you in, in a lot of ways. But it was really good. And I just love bread. It's, 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 I had a grilled cheese sandwich before I came. I'm not even joking. I just made that for myself. I love bread. And there was this point in this story, I'm going through Mark, um, and just kind of reading through it on my own. And 
I just wanted to meet Jesus. You know, I've known, I've followed this Christian thing for a long time, but I just wanted to meet Jesus in the story. And you get to this part in the story where Jesus is talking to, he's preaching to a bunch of people. And he's like, oh, I think they're hungry. And so he goes to his disciples and he's like, hey, we should feed them. And the disciples, rightly so, go, are you crazy? And they ask, what, what, how are we going to do this? We should just send them away. And Jesus goes, well, what do we have? And they said they have five loaves, two fish. Jesus takes it. He blesses it. He starts passing it out. And somehow there's enough. And by the end of, the, by this end of this story, 5,000 people have been fed. And on top of that, there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. As you keep going through the book of Mark, you see that Jesus, he's, he's healing and he's casting out demons and he's preaching and he's teaching. He's doing all these things. But then in chapter 8, we come to a very similar scene. Jesus is preaching to a bunch of people out in the wilderness. And he says, I think they're hungry. And his disciples go, how do you expect to feed everybody out here? And if I was Jesus... I'm not saying if I was actually, if I was in Jesus' position at that point as myself, I'd be like, are you stupid? Like two months ago, two months ago, what happened? You were there, right? Like what in the world? Are, why are you asking? I know there's no stupid questions, but that was a stupid question. <laughs> Thankfully, Jesus, I'm not Jesus. I wasn't there. Jesus does his thing, which is a lot better. And he goes, well, what do we have? He doesn't even address that or them asking the same exact questioning. And he just goes, well, what do we have? And they said, we got seven loaves. And takes some, these, these loaves and a few fish and he blesses it and passes it out. And by the end of the, this story, there's 4,000 people fed and there's seven baskets full of leftovers. And he gets in a boat after this. He's, I guess, near the, the Sea of Galilee. He gets in a boat and he goes to another called the district of Dalmanutha, and he goes to this, this other place. But all of the communities around the Sea of Galilee were fairly connected. It's not a huge lake. And so when he gets to this other place, he starts talking to some Pharisees. Now, I don't know if this was the same day or a couple days later. If it was a couple days later, there's a very good chance the Pharisees would have heard of what he had just done. But I don't know. Either way, even if they hadn't heard of what he had just done, they knew who he was. They knew about all these stories about this guy who's casting out demons and healing people and raising the dead, all this crazy stuff. And he's teaching and preaching. And so we come to this text here, verse 11, the Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. I don't know if you've ever been there. You're just like, really? You got to be kidding me. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, he got in a boat again, and he went to the other side. He's left, I'm out. Now, it's important for us to understand before we kind of move forward, because Jesus is going to reference them in the text that we're covering. The Pharisees were these guys who, they were, gen they were men, who were very learned men, who knew Scripture inside and out. And they were well-respected in the Jewish community. They were people who had this, there was several different sects or like groups of people who had, had a, a, a philosophy of how the Jewish people should deal with their current situation. The Pharisees were a very well-respected group, probably one of the most well-respected groups. And they had kind of this major philosophy, one major thing that, that everything else that they did was built off of. But before we get to that, we have to understand the, the trauma of the past that it was all built on. 
If you know the story of Scripture, the Old Testament, you know that the people of Israel, they were in captivity for several hundred years. And then after they're in captivity, they get freed by God, and then they build this kingdom. And there's these kings that, that are really great, but it goes downhill super quick. And they start saying, well, we want to do our own thing. We want, to, we want to do life apart from God. We don't want to do it with Him. We want to do it apart from Him. And unfortunately, at a certain point, there's these two empires that show up, and they take out the people of Israel, and they take them into captivity. And then another bigger empire shows up and takes out those empires. And then that empire is like, hey, people of Israel want to go back? You can like kind of rebuild. They rebuild, but it's not the same. It's not the glory days like they were hoping for. Well, then this random guy named Alexander the Great shows up, takes out the empire that they were under, and then he dies and his kingdom splits into four. They're under another one of those kingdoms. One of the kings ends up being really, really oppressive. So they rebel. They, they form their own kingdom again. They get their own kings back, but that's only for a few decades. And then Rome shows up. And that's where we're at in the story. So 400 years ago, they're taken away into captivity. And then in the, in the intervening years, they've had all of this turmoil. And in that time, this group called the Pharisees kind of rose up with this basic philosophy, and this is what it is, is the reason that all of this has happened to us is because we didn't keep the law of God like we were supposed to. That's their basic, if you read through the prophets and all that stuff, you get that hint, but the Pharisees picked this up and ran with it. This was their main philosophy. And the thing is, there, there is a truth to it. There is a true peace to it. And if you, if you read through the, the end of the story of the Old Testament and you read the prophets who are speaking to the people at the end of the story of the Old Testament, you can see that, that they had really decided we want our own way. We don't want to do things the way God has laid out. We want to do things our way. And so they started to turn into by worshiping and, and, and forming alliances and doing all the things that the other kingdoms around them were doing. They started to turn into the kingdoms around them. If you read through the prophets, they are getting just torn apart, like the prophets tear these people apart for being an unjust, unjust society that where people are, it's, it's inequitable and all these horrible things. They decided to do things their way. And, and the problem is, you've probably heard the, the, the phrase, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. The basic idea here is you live the way all the kingdoms of the world live, you die the way all the kingdoms of the world die. And, and a bigger empire shows up and takes you out, and there's destruction and trauma and, and ripping apart of families and all these horrible things that happen. And so then the Pharisees, like I said, they pick this up. They're like, yeah, like the reason this all happened to us is because we didn't keep the law of God like he laid out. We got to do it better. And it's, the, it's, it's, a, it's a right idea. Like we want to follow God so closely and so well, but the problem is is that they also attached it to an unconscious, unexamined motive that was there underneath the surface that I don't think many people were thinking too much about. And the thing is, is I, I, when we look at the history of, of this, this philosophy, these, these, this group of people, what they wanted really was control. When, when you have a traumatic thing happen to you, you want to make it never happen again. When, when you have this, this horrible traumatic national history. You, you don't want that to happen again. You want the kingdom. You want the, the nationalism. You want the ability to say, we get to dictate how our lives go. 
They wanted the ability to control. They wanted to dictate how life would go for them moving forward. The problem is, is when you mash together these two ideas, that we didn't keep the law of God enough, we need to do that better, and you mash that up with, I really want to control how my life goes, this is where you end up. You end up in a position where, where you come out with this way where you can control God. And here's what I mean. You make God into this vending machine. If I keep the laws of God really well, if I input all of the righteousness and goodness, and I'm a good person, and I'm trying my hardest, and if I input all of that, then God should output blessing and positive things happening to me. Or at the very least, He should keep negative, horrible, awful things from happening to me. And it ends up being this weird thing where, where we're trying to control God. It becomes a form of control. And, and so now following God is no longer surrendering and saying, as you will. It's not surrendering and saying, okay, yeah, however you want this life to be, however you want your kingdom to look like, all that, it's not that anymore. Now it's literally just, I'm going to put you, it's like opening the vending machine, shoving God in there and being like, okay, I did the right thing. You should bless me now. I did the right thing. Send the Messiah so that the Messiah can overthrow the Romans for us and we can self-govern and self-actualize like we've always wanted. And so this is their philosophy, and this is the problem that, that they mash these ideas together, and they've ended up in this place where they've made laws for literally everything. And they've come to the place where they are keeping those laws, but the problem is the letter of the law always gives you leeway to do things that are immoral outside of the, the letter of the law. And so Jesus at some point will even say to them, he's like, you literally are throwing out widows onto the street out of your rental houses because they can't pay. The spirit of the law says, do not do that. The letter of the law doesn't say anything about it. So these are the kind of people they've become. And all of the people around them see them as these paragons of religious virtue. But really what they're telling everybody through their words and their actions is you have to be like us. But we're also hypocrites. And we're broken, messed up people, but you also got to be like us. And if you're not like us, then you, God won't bless you. And it's just this horrible thing. And so Jesus is just like, I'm not going to give you a sign. There's no sign for you. And here's why. Because what you want more than ever, as they're asking, like, give us a sign that you're the Messiah. It's like, what you really want is for me to prove to you that I'm who you want me to be. That's really what you're asking for. It's for me to prove to you that I'm the kind of conquering, nation-building hero that you want. But the problem is, is I'm not that guy. I'm not that God. And, all of the, and, and the thing, he says, there will be no sign for this generation. But what's funny is he goes and starts raising people from the dead and healing people and casting out demons, but there will be no sign. You know why? Because there will be no sign that you will ever see that will convince you of who I am. There's plenty of signs of who I actually am. None that you'll see, none that you'll get, none that will cause you to say, oh, I get it now. And so this is all of what Jesus is dealing with. He gets in a boat and he's like, I'm out. And I don't know what, the, what happened. I don't know if they were, you know, 200 yards from shore and Jesus is, and, and his disciples are talking and then he, he speaks up and says what he's about to say. Or I don't know if they're in the middle of the lake, Jesus kind of been silent in the corner of the boat thinking to himself, whatever it is, it seems like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus just says these words, and he cautioned them. This is verse 15. 
saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And if you read that, you're just like, what? <laughs> leaven is yeast, right? Is that cleared up for you? You got it now? Okay, yeah, no, me either. Um, because <laughs> it makes no sense. What are you talking about, Jesus? And what's funny is the disciples didn't get it either. And so Jesus just speaks up, says this, and then, and then in verse 16, and they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. In verse 14, we find out they only have one loaf of bread in the boat. They forgot to bring bread. Don't know whose responsibility that one was, but they forget to bring it. And so Jesus says, beware of the leaven and the yeast of the Pharisees and the, and, and the leaven of Herod. And they're like, what's he talking about? And the other guy's like, well, we only got the one loaf, yeast, bread. It's got to be it, right? But then in verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? And it seems like Jesus is being a bit harsh. But, but let's go back before we get to why he says, or to, to, to the what's behind all of that. Let's actually get to the, what, what he's trying to say when he's talking about yeast. Yeast is this tiny little organism. And it, you, if you put it in bread, it, there's a whole reaction that happens, and it causes the dough to rise. Not bread. If you put it in dough, it will cause the dough to rise over time. What's kind of amazing is it's tiny, and you only need a little bit of it. I was looking up some of the recipes and stuff, and it kind of came out that, that for dough to rise, you only need 2% of the ingredients to be yeast. 2%. 2% of this tiny little organism will cause the entire loaf, this entire thing, to be shaped and formed into a completely different thing. And I guess I wonder if Jesus is just saying, there's this, these little things, these little messages that get into us as people. And they don't sound like much at first, but the more we sit with them, the more they get in us, it has the possibility of shaping and forming our entire being. He's, he's literally saying this to them. He's saying that the Pharisees have this thing. And whatever this thing is, when it gets in you, it shapes you and it molds you into something. And apparently it's not something good because Jesus is cautioning them about it. And then he talks about this guy, Herod, and, and simply Herod was the king at that time. He was the one who killed John the Baptist because his stepdaughter or half-daughter, I don't remember which one it was, uh, danced in front of him like well enough that it pleased him. He's like, you can have whatever you want. Her mom was mad at John the Baptist because her and Herod were having, an, were having a weird relationship that wasn't sanctioned that John the Baptist spoke out about. So her mom tells her, ask Herod for John the Baptist's head, and Herod's like, well, I guess I got to do it. This is that guy. <laughs> That's just the tip of the iceberg of his life. But really, if we were to encapsulate him, you could say power and pleasure. Those are the two things that drove or at least seemed to be a major factor for his life. And Jesus seems to be saying whatever it is about the Pharisees and Herod, there's this little tiny thing that gets in you and then it changes all of you over time and slowly and it just gets in there. And Jesus seems to be inviting his disciples to see that. But then for us, Jesus seems to be inviting us to see, like, what's this small little messaging, this, this little thing that's getting in you 
that's shaping you and forming you into something. And we could say, well, like the Pharisees, they had this whole philosophy that was really broken at its core, and then that's why they ended up the way they were. I'm not I'm not, like, I'm not like them. Maybe you came out of a place that was like really traditional, like a, a religious, uh, uh, ch- like a church, a religious community that was very traditional. And you're like, I know the Pharisees were like very legalistic. I'm not that. I've rejected all of that actually. But what's interesting is you might find that your relationship or like your, 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 your view of God is actually quite transactional. If you've ever said the words, my mom was a good person, why did she get cancer? It says something, and I'm not saying that you're wrong for feeling that. What it, does, what it does say is that we have this feeling, if I do something good, something good ought to happen, or at least nothing bad should happen. There's a bit of that vending machine in there. Like, I, I, I planned well for my future. I did everything I should have done. Why did it fall apart? I'm trying my hardest. Why are bad things happening to me? I'm a good person. Why are bad things happening to me? Or with Herod, it's like, well, I'm not Herod. I wouldn't do what I, that story I just laid out for you about John the Baptist. I would never do something like that. But the problem is, is I think many of us, because of, of experiences in our life, we're, we're just trying to avoid feeling monotony in our life. We're, we're trying to avoid some of the negative things we've felt. Maybe I actually know there's someone that I know very well who really has never gone through any trauma in his life but because of that, doesn't know how to deal with negative emotions. And so you just pursue pleasure. You're not a bad person for doing it, but just it's a recognition. Like that's just what he does because he, he wants to feel something, but he doesn't want to feel negative things. And so we, we all have this stuff where it's like we could say, well, I'm not the Pharisees, I'm not Herod, but the problem is, is that there's something that's gotten into us that has begun to shape and to form who we are. And Jesus seems to be inviting his disciples, and by extension, us, his disciples today. He's inviting us to see the, the little bits of yeast that have gotten in us and, and to begin to identify what are those things. He, he's inviting us to look into our lives with him. He already sees it. He's not asking us to do like some self-help thing. What he's saying is, like, would you look in with me? And, and, and what are the messages? What is the little bit of yeast that's gotten into you from, from the religious community you grew up in? Or what is it from your family of origin? Or from the culture you grew up in? Or from the culture at large? What's the little bit of yeast that, that your relationship with your friends or just your romantic relationships or other people? What are the, what are the little bits of yeast that got in you from those things that have begun to shape and form who you are? And we all have stuff, but these things that, that shape and form us, these little messaging, little bits of messages that get into us, they, they shape all of our life, and then by extension, they shape how we interact in all of our relationships with myself first, and then with the people around me, and ultimately with God too. And so it, it's just this invitation, watch out, beware of the, the yeast of the blank, of the what? And what are we listening? What are the messages we're listening to? Maybe it's, it's, it's like your family. You grew up in this family that said success is in these specific categories. Success is this kind of job. It's this kind of prestige. It's this kind of life. It's getting to this point in life. That's what success is. And it, success outside or anything outside of that isn't success. And that has gotten in you. 
It's baked itself into you and has shaped you and who you are today. In some good ways, but also in some ways that are not helpful and are very harmful to us. Are you listening to the messaging that you're, that the little bit, little bit of yeast that trauma started in you when you were a kid, or maybe there was some sort of traumatic event that happened later in your life? The trauma that tells you, I can never be out of control ever again because that can never happen to me, or because I can't control things, I just have to run away all the time. That's the only way I can deal with it. And that little bit of something that got in you has now shaped all of you. Maybe it's relationships, like it's, I, I, have to, I have to be a certain way to be accepted. Maybe it's culture at large saying what a meaningful life is, is having an adventure all the time. And if you're not having adventure, you're not having a meaningful life. Or it's the accumulation of something, whether it's followers or wealth or just, in essence, adventures. If you accumulate enough, you've had a meaningful life. I don't know what it is, but for all of us, we have these things, and Jesus is inviting us to see these little bits of yeast that have gotten into us, the messaging that is shaping us. But the disciples, when they hear this sentence, they think, you know, he said yeast. He must be talking about bread. And Peter forgot to bring the bread. I didn't forget to bring the bread. You were supposed to buy it. No, I'm, I'm hungry, man. Have you ever been hangry? I'm hungry. I don't care whose responsibility it was. It's the bread that should have been here that isn't here. And they just start thinking about this because it's the present need, the thing that, that's right in front of their face. It's the, it's the simple, like, because it's right here and I can feel the need, it's the simplest thing to focus on. And Jesus looks at them and he's like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I just had a conversation with people who absolutely didn't get it. And you guys have walked with me for at least a few months, if not a year or two. How are you this dense? And he says to them, like, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? He's, that's, a, that's a couple of statements from the prophets who label the people of Israel with those same statements. And he says, do you not remember? Do you not remember? I think Jesus is often inviting us into that same space. Look beyond, look at these little things that have gotten in you that have shaped all of you. But because there's these ever-present things right in our face, we don't get there. It's like a class you got to pass, and that's just like, it's, it's all-consuming. It's just, that's what your life is right now. Or it's a relationship that's really good. It's so good, it consumes all your life. It's just right in front of you. Or it's, there's some tension there. Or it's, it's, it's broken apart, and that's what's right in front of you. Or you're just, and maybe this is for most of us, we're just so busy. The disciples, they're like, we're missing bread. And you're like, I'm missing time. I don't have time. To really go deeper in my life, I don't have time to do the, the, the work that some of this seems to require. I don't have the time to just sit still with God. I got so much stuff I got to do. But Jesus has a response to that. He says, the last question he asks is like, and do you not remember? And the next thing that he says is, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many leftover baskets were there? And they go 12. And he says, 
when I broke the, the, when I, when I broke the, low, the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets were there left? And they say seven. And then he goes and he says to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? And I wonder if Jesus is calling us into the same conversation. He's calling us first and saying like, listen, there's some stuff that's gotten in you from childhood, from trauma, from family, from religion, from all of these different spaces, and it's shaped and formed all of you. And we're over here like there's just stuff right in my face. Busyness, relationships, all these, they're just right in my face. How could I ever even think past that? And so he calls us into this thing that doesn't seem to fix it right off the, right off the bat. He says, remember. Remember, look back. What have I done? Where have I been? And I, and I wonder if there's just this, this, this thing that God is calling us into, to look back. And when I do that, well, let me just describe it this way. The, the, the last two years for my wife and I have been probably the hardest that I've been through. And I feel like it's saying something. My parents went through divorce when I was 12. My dad was in prison for most of my teenage years. And the last two years of my life were harder. And so I don't say that lightly. And I know I'm not the only one, that there are many of you who the last two years were harder than other times, maybe any other time in your life. But the reason that I, I, I say this is because I went through this, this process over the last two years of feeling stripped of any sort of previous understanding of who I was. I was a pastor, serving as a pastor, and when COVID hit, I was just like, I am done with this. Thought I was done for a long time, so I started applying for other jobs. But through all of that, I was just like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. I know I can't stay here where I'm at, but I don't know where to go. I actually think that I, that I would like staying in pastoring, but I don't know I don't think there's any sort of position like the one that I know that I'm best fit for in the church that I'm part of, in Adventism. And so I started applying for other jobs, and so I went through this whole year of just feeling the mental distress of not knowing who I was and what I was supposed to do. All of the dreams I had had since I was in college were now falling apart. I wasn't who I thought I was. But this job was pretty exciting. And they get to about a month before we're going to move. We had the realtor out to our house that day to sell our house, to move to a different city. And I get a call saying the job fell through. And I remember sitting down in my driveway, just feeling like I got nothing. I think I even said that to my wife. I have nothing. What's crazy is a couple of weeks before that, we had had our daughter, our first child, I knew I couldn't stay where I was, so I went and talked to my boss, the conference president, and didn't go in there expecting to quit, came out of there having quit. <laughs> and that was very good. He was very nice. I was able to take paternity leave and all that stuff, but then we spent three months putting our house on the market with no specific place to go. What are we supposed to do? And then we, we, we ended up not having a place, so we moved in with our parents because we're millennials, and that's what you do. When you're in your 20s, you move in with your parents. But all throughout all of this, right as we're going to move to, to, to be in with our parents, we were only going to be there for a month because I had a job lined up. And then 
got the call the first week, that fell through. But this was all just the material stuff. I'm not talking just about like the, the intensity of the inward battle that was this last two years. But always at the front, forefront of my mind, right in front of my face, was how am I going to provide for my wife and my daughter? What am I going to end up doing? I could, I could go and try out this new career I'm thinking of, but I could get there and realize this is not what I'm passionate about. And then I'm just stuck. Uh, you know, what if we get to the, this new place and we just hate it? What if there is nothing? And what if, I, what if everything that I thought that I was supposed to do is what I was supposed to do, but now I've just left all of it. Now there's nothing left. And all of this stuff is just right in front of me. And there's this battle in the back of my mind of like, I could trust God or I could take control myself. And can I be honest with you, because this is real life? Most of the last two years was just like, I don't have the energy to trust God. And so it was a mess. It was a mess internally. It's a mess relationally. It's a mess all sorts of different ways. Because it's usually not very perfect for us. I'm not trying to get across that there's like some formula we, we do and then all of a sudden we, we get into this deep place with God and all of a sudden everything's perfect. They're just trusting so well all the time. Maybe that is a possibility for, for, for some points in our relationship with God, but this was not it for me. And what's crazy is, in somewhere in my mind, there was this mustard seed of faith. And I say that only because that was about all I could have. God will come through. It was back there and it wasn't really at the forefront of my mind most of the time, but God somehow used that because he does a good job with small things like mustard seeds of faith. And what's interesting is with that mustard seed of faith, he started to get to those little bits of yeast and the messages I had built up over childhood trauma from my family of origin, from religion, from all of these different places in my life, from my personality that took all of those things and meshed them together into this weird conglomeration of a person. And God started to address those things. There's plenty of yeast still left, I'm sure. But he started to address those things. And what's funny is that when I looked back, I realized that that mustard seed of faith came only because God had been consistently faithful to me over the course of my entire life. In the midst of trauma, I can tell you that there was a time I can look back at and God was sitting next to me in a closet while I was in tears. I can look back and say that there was a time where I did not have a father and yet God put people in my life who became like fathers to me. I can look back and say there should not have been the money for me to attend the schools that I did. I look back and I say through that relationship, I should not have survived in a relationship with God out the end of that breakup. And yet somehow God brought me back to himself. And I looked back over that. And maybe that was the only place the mustard seed of faith could come. Jesus says, remember what I've done. Just remember, look back. I've been there. I've been consistent. I have followed through with you over the course of your whole life. But what's interesting is what I can say out of this last two years. That Jesus got to the yeast, the messaging that I had internalized and didn't even know. And you know what I can clearly say to you? I'm much, much more glad he got there. I'm much more glad he started to work on that stuff than if he had just solved all the things that were right in front of my face. And the reason that I tell you that is because the stuff in front of my face is temporary. The stuff that has baked me into the person that I am is the thing that I am. I want Jesus to get to that stuff 
I want him to get deep inside of my soul and start to take out those little bits of yeast that have gotten in me from those other places. And I want him, instead of those things shaping and forming me, I want to be shaped and formed by him into the image bearer that I was created to be. And so the challenge for us is simply this. Can we actually be open to the deep work that the Lord wants to do in us? And what I want to lay out as I close is just a practice. It's not the practice. It's not the way that we do this, but just a way that we can kind of get in this space to let God start to do that work in our lives. And there's two things. Just as I, as I lay this out, first of all, the reason we do a practice like this is not to have a formula to solve the problem. The reason we do something like this is to create space to be with Jesus and let him work in our lives. The second thing I'll say is to create space, we have to be in a place where we get alone and we're not in a rush. So what I mean is get alone and don't have like an appointment in 15 minutes. Have some space and some time to be able to walk through this with Jesus. And so we're gonna, I'm going to put some things up, just four things on the screen. If you want to write them down, you can. You can try this out for yourself. But this is just a practical way that we can start this process. First of all, is we get in this space where we're alone and where we're not in a rush. And we, if we have the slide, we surrender. We come with a posture of surrender. Lord, here I am with all of me, with every single thing that I have baked into my life. And I'm handing it over to you. I'm just handing it over. You get to be who you are and you get to do with me as you choose. And the second thing that we do in this space is we come with honesty to question and to lament. God, I don't even know the yeast that's gotten into my life, the, the messaging from these other places that's gotten into my life that's affected me. I don't even know. Or maybe you have some kind of good ideas. And you're like, God, listen, I didn't ask for that to happen to me when I was seven years old. I didn't ask for that. It's not fair. And we lament. I didn't ask to grow up in the family I grew up in. It's not fair. I didn't ask to have this personality. Why? We lament in honesty. We question with honesty. This is really my questions because God can handle those things. So first we come and surrender. You can have all of me, but I got some stuff to say. I got some, some questions. And then we and as a third thing, we remember. And now when we come to remembrance, we don't do this as like, okay, well, the time's getting too close, so I got to start remembering what God has done for me. Because then we just get into this weird space where we're don't actually, we don't actually mean it. We're still mad. We're still angry. But I guess I should do it. No, after we have lamented and questioned and gotten it out at the feet of Jesus, then there is a space where we go. But when I look back, when I look back, you have been faithful and good to me over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I see you there. And I trust you in that. And you can praise and you can thank him and, and all of that. But we come to remembrance because what it reminds us is that God has done it in the past. and he's, We can trust him with now. We can trust him with getting deep into us like a surgeon would. And it's not Jesse trying to operate on you because I would mess you up. 
This is Jesus who knows you better than, ev- than anything. He can get in there and he can, he can do his work. But then the last thing that we do is, it's not, it's not even a good way of saying it, but we give it time. The thing is, this is not, a, this is not a, the work of a, of a day or two days. This is often the work of weeks, months, maybe even years of allowing God to get deep in us and say, hey, that messaging that you picked up, it's coming out slowly. It's going to come out. I got it. Don't you worry. I got it. But we give it time. So whether this is something that you do consistently, this kind of practice where you get quiet with Jesus, not rushed at all, you do this consistently and you keep giving it to God and you keep working through this space or you give it to him once and you're just like, Lord, I am trusting you with this and I'm going to let you do it. I don't know what it is for you, but I want to offer this practice to you as a potential help in your journey to say, Lord, you can say to me, beware of this yeast. Look out for the stuff that's gotten in me. Okay, Lord, I hear you. I want you to work in that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that we can trust you. I thank you so much that you are a God who offers yourself to us, not because we do have it all together, but just because it's who you are. You just offer yourself. And so, Lord, there's some scary stuff. There's, there's maybe some people in this room right now who know clearly like, oh, there's this thing and I don't want to let go of it. There's many, maybe some of us who, we just have no idea. What could it be? Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us in your quiet, gentle way what it is in our lives that we have believed, that the little things that have gotten into us and shaped and formed us into, into ways that are, are not really good for your kingdom, not good for us, not good for the people around us. Whatever it is, Lord, I trust that as we go on this journey with you in the months and years ahead, we will look back and say, Lord, I'm so glad you got to the yeast and you didn't just feed me some bread. Thank you for everything you've done, everything you're going to do. In your name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.